By now, you've probably seen ads about the water contamination at Camp Lejeune everywhere. People who got sick after drinking that toxic water are now able to seek repayment for their medical costs because of a new law, the PACT Act. What those other ads don't tell you is that because the PACT Act is a fresh law, it's important to find an attorney who understands the new claims forms. There is a limited time to file your Camp Lejeune claim, so you need a lawyer who can get it right the first time. The experienced team of attorneys at SickMarine.com is ready to file your claim. They will fight for you and they won't take no for an answer. Sign up at SickMarine.com. This is Dennis Sanders, your host. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite platform, and it would mean a lot if you took the time to subscribe. And you can find Enroute on a multitude of platforms, such as Apple Podcasts slash iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and a number of other platforms that I can't remember. If you also would be able to do a solid for me, leave a rating or a review on your podcast platform, especially on Apple Podcasts back on slash iTunes. Doing that makes it a whole lot easier for others to find this podcast. Well, for today's podcast, I want you to remember to think back to maybe around 2009 or 2010. It seems back then that everyone seemed to love Facebook. As a pastor, I was told about all the wonderful virtues of social media, especially Facebook, and how it could it was a good thing and could help my congregation. Mark Zuckerberg, who the founder and who created Facebook and um, helped it go live in 2006, became an instant icon. I can remember seeing visits, uh, pictures of him visiting um, then-President Obama at the White House. He even got the Hollywood treatment with the movie The Social Network that kind of told the story of how Facebook came to be. And who could forget, there was some speculation a few years ago that he might run for president. Well, My, how things have changed. Zuckerberg and his company, Facebook, are now in the doghouse. Now it seems that everyone wants to blame Facebook for everything bad in the world, from genocide to the loss of civility and to affecting the outcome of the 2016 presidential election. Facebook is even now likened to Big Tobacco, And Democrats and Republicans are looking to find some way to regulate the platform. But is Facebook really all that bad? It's not perfect, but I use it to connect with friends from high school. Small businesses are able to advertise because of Facebook's affordable rates. If you go to other parts of the world, 
people rely on WhatsApp, which is a, a, a Facebook platform that they use to communicate with others. Somehow, when we talk about all the bad things that have been happening, especially with the recent release of the, of the Facebook papers, we almost never hear about how Facebook allows all of us to connect with each other. Today, I chat with Yael Osowski, who is the Deputy Director of the Consumer Choice Center and the co-host of Consumer Choice Radio. Yael has written extensively on Facebook and social media and the attempts to regulate it. And in the podcast, we talk about how Facebook can be used for good, what the critics get wrong about Facebook. And we also talk about what would happen to the internet if Section 230, that is the law that in some ways governs and in some ways created most of the internet today, were radically altered or removed. So let's listen to Yael. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Well, Dennis, it's a pleasure to be on. I think the first thing to start off with is that um, we've been hearing, of course, in the media, a lot of everything that is um, wrong with Facebook and just a lot of information about a lot of different things. Are any any of this things that are truly concerned or is it all hype? I think they're probably everyone who has a grievance against Facebook is right in one way. I think everyone has an ax to grind. Uh, same like we would have an ax to grind with our internet service provider. Same like we would have an ax to grind with, you know, our local newspaper. You know, everyone's going to have opinions on everything. I think where we've seen the conversation go astray is that the proposed solutions, and whether we talk about censorship of various accounts, whether we talk about the ability to take out advertising, most of that will generally make the platform worse and really will make the user experience just just garbage. Uh, I, I, I don't really have any, any doubts about saying that. I think the political concerns that are happening in Washington are very removed from the Facebook that you and I know. And the Facebook that we use to connect with communities. I mean, I've I've uh, lived abroad for the better part of ten years, and using something like Facebook to connect with family, with friends, it's been vital. And unfortunately, many of the people who like to criticize Facebook or go against Facebook, uh, they look at perhaps the posts that they see. Uh, they see some of the pages that are trending, and it's all about information. And the second that you have any large provider of information or a platform. You have people who are going to want to restrict that, regulate that, and to make sure that it confines to their wishes. So, you know, is there merit in many of the criticisms? Probably. Uh, You know, I I think we can take any number of them and and go through them and dissect them. Uh, Overall, all of the solutions that we've seen are probably going to make it worse. Well, and that's an interesting thing. When I hear a lot of the complaints about Facebook, 
one of the things that I have always um, really appreciated is that it's really helped me to connect with people that I haven't talked to in years. Um, people that I knew from high school um, that I may have not spoken to in 20 years, I was able to finally connect with. Um, I'm able to connect with family um, in different parts of the country and talk to them. Why haven't we not heard about that part of Facebook? Because I think it's not like there are billions of people all looking to read QAnon, but the way that we are, you hear it in the news, it sounds like that's what we're, we're all doing. Yeah, I think there it again has to do with more of the political concerns because I think most people who use it and, you know, I've written about these topics before and the examples that I use are people who want to connect, you know, much like yourself, uh, but also small businesses that use the platform to advertise to customers. You know, if you have a local gym, a local cafe, you know, you rely on, on Facebook advertising to get word out about your mm -hmm. store. And I think the, the problem with uh, the political concerns, it has to do with the groups that people are making. You know, you have these QAnon pages, you'll have some hard left pages on this and that, you'll have anti-religion groups, pro-religion groups. And I think that's, that's sort of the beauty of civil society is that these things exist anyway. Facebook is just providing that other outlet that people are able to use. Maybe they won't use Facebook if they're not allowed to be on there. Maybe they'll use meetup.com and they'll go hang out with their friends. Maybe they'll use something like Twitter or they'll use... Uh, a mastodon instance, you know, that these are things that I think are very beautiful about the internet. And unfortunately, many of the opponents of Facebook and all their products, because we have to remember, it's not just Facebook, it's Instagram, it's WhatsApp. Uh, I mean, WhatsApp is used by hundreds of millions of people around the world for ordinary communication, mm -hmm. you know, back and forth. So any kind of legislation or restrictions that are dreamed up in Washington are going to impact a lot of people who depend on these platforms. You know, we don't hear the success stories of people connecting with their friends and family and, and groups, again, because it doesn't serve that, that um, ulterior political agenda. And I think that's, that's very much unfortunate because I think there's so much benefit that's happening out there and we don't hear those stories every day. One of the stories that I read um, in the Washington Post was um, one dealing with, ba well, basically the algorithms and when they added um, likes, and then I think for years, people had wanted a dislike button and they would use, you could use the angry emoji and that those were weighted more. Um, supposedly there was some type of a connection between that and making people more angry. Is that really the case or is it that people are already feeling that way and that this is kind of like, I don't know, confirmation bias or to, to that extent. I think, I mean, likely the way that the algorithms are tuned, I wouldn't doubt uh, that that would be the case that, you know, people who use angry emojis, maybe it's pushed up the page a bit more. But even if that's the case, I mean, essentially, so what? Every single website service, every platform has a type of algorithm we're doing this. And, you know, sometimes the algorithm works really well. Oftentimes it doesn't. You know, does it lead us to angrier content? Uh, perhaps, but what are we searching? I mean, a, a computer system is always input output, mm -hmm. and it depends on your input in order to get that output. And we see that with so many other sites and pages. I mean, just look at your email inbox. You you might have the occasional spam message, or you know, <laughs> if you have a Gmail, I'm sure you have a lot more. But everything that you're getting in your inbox, at some point, you've wanted to get there. You've clicked a newsletter. You've subscribed to something. Uh, perhaps the data has been shared or sold so that you're on another list. Uh, but it's not necessarily always out of left field. And I think with the algorithms, 
that's where a lot of the innovation has come. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of posts that happen on Facebook. You know, you, you might have 5,000 friends, 3,000 friends. You don't see every single post. Um, you know, if you did, it would be a constant stream. The way that they have prioritized it, and there have been, you know, critical junctures where they really got it wrong uh, with a lot of these changes. We heard that with, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's comments about uh, internally how they had to change this and that, and they wanted more native local content. So they probably have made mistakes. But again, it's very similar to YouTube and the algorithm there. Things are brought to you on a platter because of what you search, what you look up, the keywords that you're using. It's just how these models work. And we can criticize it and we can use alternatives. I think that's the better part is we can use alternatives that don't have these algorithms or have a much less active algorithm. I don't see the need to get upset about it. I can see people who definitely don't want to see certain parts of content. But actually, Facebook provides a lot of tools for you to mute accounts, to unfollow, delete accounts. Uh, You can actually change a lot of that stuff. I think perhaps it's a technological point that it is a bit complex and complicated to do that. Is part of this that a lot of people, especially politicians, don't understand some of this, like such as algorithms? I mean, I don't understand a whole lot of it. Of course, I'm not proposing laws, um, but it seems like a lot of the, you know, whenever there are hearings on Capitol Hill, that half the time they don't really know what they are, are talking about. And is this something that it, it's more of a fear of something that is unknown or, th- or something that you don't understand? Yeah, and it's definitely something that cannot be controlled necessarily. And that's why every time I, I hear the phrase, you know, Facebook swung the election towards Trump or, you know, Facebook did this and that. It's, well, you're, you're putting all of that onus on a, one platform of which there are, I don't know what, 3 billion accounts. And those accounts represent people and people's thoughts and people's emotions and people's events that they host on there. So can you really ascribe, you know, all of the things that are thrown at Facebook at the company itself? Not really. And, you know, from everything that I've seen, it really must be difficult working there because you're bombarded daily with takedown requests, with censorship requests. And really, when it, when you come to the situation in Washington with, you know, senators and congressmen, you know, they haven't researched these issues on their own. It's their staffs or it's uh, certain advocacy groups, uh, much like mine, that will reach out and provide our own sort of ideas of what legislation should be or what policy should be. And a lot of it that they're getting is from people who would like to see more restrictions. So it's not a surprise to hear uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal, who we cannot call a digital native, (laughs) you know, uh, talking about Finsta accounts and and mentioning all these various parts of which, you know, he he has not interacted with any of this stuff and probably hasn't seen it. Uh, But I think that is that is something that's problematic, particularly when it comes to innovative technology that's growing every single day. If we attempt to taper that with some type of regulation, at worst, it means the platforms are just you know, going to be terrible and no one will want to use them. Uh, if we look even further down the road, maybe it won't be American tech companies dominating the space anymore. Maybe it will be those that are based in Europe or based in Latin America or Australia. Uh, so we'd actually lose, if we want to use the nationalistic point, uh, we kind of lose the American domination of uh, internet entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think one of the things that I have um, thought about a lot, especially in the light of the 2016 election and all the talking about it, uh, you know, the election, Facebook swinging the election, or dealing with some of these kind of far right groups or things to that extent is, at least to me, that 
bad people can use technology or communicate, especially communications technology, just like good people can. Um, you know, the Nazis used radio very effectively. Um, radio was also used very effectively during um, the Rwandan genocide. We're not saying that radio itself is evil, um, but it seems that that's what we're doing with Facebook is that we're, we're basically saying Facebook is evil because these people use um, Facebook. And it also seems like it, it's really hard for something that is so big to try to be on, on top of everything. It, it just, it seems impossible to try to do that. Yeah, one, one person I would point your listeners to is, um, I'll, I'll play a patriotic card for a second, is a uh, fellow Canadian, Marshall McLuhan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he wrote many different books throughout his time. Um, you know, the medium is the message. It's sort of what you always hear from, from a lot of his writings. And his whole point is that, you know, when we look at television, we look at radio, yes, there are, is content and there are messages that are there, but it's effectively the work of the medium that is the real output. You know, it's people that are sitting down in front of a television that are being screamed at, you know, for 30 minutes until the commercial break, or it's radio where they hear one voice for conversation and Facebook or Twitter or the internet itself are just another medium. And it is true that they're going to be obnoxious, terrible people who are on these platforms and where necessary when they break rules, you can kick them off, you can block them. And I think that's a very good thing that we have. There are a lot of regulations that would like to change this, uh, particularly if we look at the net neutrality provisions that the FCC put in place back in 2015 that were thankfully, I would say, (laughs) uh, pushed away in 2017, but might make a comeback here in the next couple of months. You know, we don't have government control of the internet. And there are a lot of things to like or not like about government. I think definitely the American constitution and looking at uh, the various amendments when it comes to free speech, when it comes to freedom of assembly, these are great things. However, when we're talking about regulation of internet entities or platforms and everything else, you know, we're not going to have the great type of, of ecosystem of products if all of a sudden we're empowering agencies to go after particularly content. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think that's what most people find atrocious. It's content, it's people having a voice. And where it is necessary, people should build alternatives. And they're building them all of the time. I mean, there's uh, the recent acquisition of the Rumble video platform by this Locals page that people have been using a lot. There's alternatives that I use in my own daily life. I mean, everybody has the ability to use Signal as a text messaging thing or Mastodon instance uh, that I've used for a while. They're all types of alternatives. I just think it's very unfortunate that we'll just look at the you know key accounts that might be um, making people very upset or might be very offensive and you know, ascribing that to the entire platform. That, that's definitely not a good look. Well, speaking of some um, regulation that has been, t- and legislation that has been talked about, um, Australia kind of came out with one that was rather interesting. Um, and that was to basically have um, Facebook pay for use of certain stories. Um, could you go into a little explanation of how that worked and, and what it, what ended up happening? Because Facebook kind of struck back in a, in, a, in a uniquely way. Yeah, so this was uh, introduced in the Australian Parliament. Uh, they were redoing their media bargaining code. Uh, so in Australia, much like the United States, it is you know this common law system where people have these uh, rules and scenarios, but that also things are determined by the courts over time. 
And Australia has a very, very rich uh, public news sector. And by that, I mean, it's not just NPR, but they have their own sort of government funded uh, station, ABC. And, and the idea that they had is that, well, companies like Facebook are using our content and we're not necessarily being compensated for it. So what they wanted to do is essentially make a, a kind of tax or registration so that every time that you clicked as a user on this particular news website in Australia, there would be some kickback, some percentage that would go back to the news outlets. I saw this more as just a way that uh, the old guard, as it were, mm-hmm. you know, the old media are attempting to use rent seeking and use the government to try to enforce uh, a force away competition. And what a lot of these news outlets don't realize is that Facebook is probably more of a benefit than it is a loss, uh, because otherwise, how are you getting your message out uh, to people, particularly when it comes to online articles? Not everybody just goes to, you know, the website of whatever it is, the Australian Day, and just, you know, combing through the articles, they see something on Facebook, they click, and people can get those ads that way. And what happened with Australia is that essentially, uh, their team down there, Facebook said, all right, well, if that's the case, we're just going to completely remove the ability to link any Australian news sites. So I, I had friends in Australia who were showing me the page where it's basically saying they weren't able to put the link anymore. And eventually they did come to a deal where essentially they will be paying uh, for a certain amount. It's it's going to be much smaller than they had intended, uh, which I view as a very bad precedent because uh, we know there are other countries like Canada that would very much like to do that. The United Kingdom, we'll see about the United States. I, I would hope not, but I think this was just showed how you know there are various old sectors of our economy, you know, newspapers, old outlets that really view Facebook as competition, and that's something that we forget to really understand in this entire debate is that the people who are criticizing platforms like Facebook and Twitter the most tend to be those who are at traditional news organizations who are directly competing with things like Facebook. So there is somewhat of a conflict of interest there, but as long as we're you know, recognizing that, I think it really could elevate the conversation and make it so that we have smarter debate on this stuff. Well, it, I think the other thing that is interesting is that you would think that some of the kind of legacy media would basically find ways to innovate. I mean, radio obviously for a long time had to deal with television and um, in many ways, I think they have innovated and, you know, we still have radio around Um, even, especially even in the age of, of podcasts, we still have it. So it doesn't seem like it's impossible for, newspapers and television stations and all of that to find ways of being innovative instead of trying to to block a certain um, new media that comes up comes their way that could be challenging yeah and i see this all the time you know as someone who uh, is an activist and writes about these issues and i'm often on television or radio there are some stations that will take you know your segment your clip they'll put it right online they'll put it on youtube they'll put it on their website you know they'll other, some of the others will lock it down so that the only way you can see it is if you tune in at 7 p.m. on, you know, the Houston NBC station. <laughs> and it's that kind of stuff to where, why are you cutting yourself off from all of the other eyeballs that you could have on this? And there, it, there are a lot of great innovations, you know, and there's a lot of things I could say about radio. Uh, there's a lot of regulations there. Uh, I mean, we have our own radio show, so we can't, uh, can't criticize the FCC and all of them too much. But podcasting and what podcasting is doing 
is just next level. You know, there's a lot of proposals out there. Uh, I don't know if you've seen them for podcasting 2.0. Make it so that you can actually, as a show, if you have it in a podcast app that does accept payments, you can set it up so that people could be streaming Bitcoin to your podcast in every single second. They can also mm. just send you a boost. Uh, there's all this kind of stuff that's happening in the background that a lot of open source devotees and Bitcoin developers are working on. And that's something that you, you, know, you just wouldn't see in the traditional media space. You know, they wouldn't see to integrate things like cryptocurrencies and listening to podcasts. Uh, I mean, we can talk uh, offline about how to, how to do that for yours, because I think that'd be really interesting. But it's this kind of stuff to where innovation is happening all the time. And collaboration is, is very important. We see that with people who write online, with activists, with r religious leaders. The ability to connect with people who ideally would be your competition, you can actually come up with some really great projects and have a lot of great impact. It's just unfortunate that many of the traditional entities and media companies uh, they like to use, you know, lobbyists and laws and punitive measures uh, to try to make sure that there aren't going to be, you know, future competition areas. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've been thinking about also over the last few years is, and, you know, maybe about a decade ago, we were hearing, this was kind of in the days when it seems like social media could do no wrong. Um, how, especially during the Arab Spring, that that was how important Facebook was in kind of getting people to communicate and bringing about change in different countries. Um, so we can, it, you know, people can see that, at least in that example, that there was something good that could result from that. Um, but again, it's like people didn't do a lot of far thinking that, you know, people who are not so good could also use it for various methods. And that doesn't again, mean that the platform itself is bad. Um, but I guess I'm, I'm curious why people can't understand that, that sometimes media can be used for good and can be used for bad. And sometimes it's not the, 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 the blame doesn't come necessarily from the media, the media platform, it's from the people using it. Sure. Yeah, there's a, there's a great book uh, that came out a few years ago. It's called Revolt of the Public. It's mm -hmm. by Martin Gurry, uh, sort of a former intelligence guy, as far as I understand. Um, I'm actually he reading it right now. Oh, you are? Okay, yeah. great. Well, we probably listen to the same podcast then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in that he talks about the Arab Spring and talks about how it's not necessarily, you know, the communicative protocols that have made it so that we have, you know, widespread outrage. It's just that that outrage is now able to be plastered throughout the world so that people can wake up and say, hey, we need to go down to Tahir Square and we didn't organize and we didn't make sure that we hold the government accountable. And I see that all of the time. I mean, I've, I've been on Facebook since 2007 and I was pretty late to the game. I wanted to wait until I had a college, you know, uh, email address so I could follow the rules of the original Facebook back then. Uh, but, you know, even then you would see groups coming together, uh, causes that we had not heard about. You know, when I was in university, we had all these different protests and sit-ins and stuff. And, how would that have worked without Facebook? I mean, I, obviously they would have plastered it, whatever, on, on campus with all the different signs and all this stuff. But there's tons of stuff I would not, would have, not would have been able to find. So I really love that part. And you know what? We're going to give the public a voice no matter what. The technology is here. 
you know, before people were perhaps organizing privately and in smaller numbers, but people were still using the phone to organize. You still had all these Vietnam protests in the 1970s. And I think we're going to continue to have that. And in many cases, it will be very good. In some cases, it could be bad. But I think that's, that's why we have to stand for free association. We have to stand for people criticizing ideas that they don't like. Because if we really try to put that under the table or say that it's now illegal, we're only going to create even worse incentives that are going to make it so that people seek out this information where it isn't at all seen by the public. And I think that could lead to a more dangerous era. And uh, you know, it might be dangerous for kings and principalities and large governments, but the more information that we have out there, I still think overall is better. And kind of dealing with some of the, especially like the QAnon types and all that, it seems to me that a lot of that chatter has also been taking place on things like 4chan and 8chan, um, which it seems to, to me to be more of a, a, a bigger concern than Facebook, um, just because with Facebook, everyone can kind of see that. Um, not everyone's on 4chan or 8chan. Um, and it's not to say that that's disconcerting if it's on Facebook, but it seems like it's at least you can see it. Um, whereas a lot of these other groups are things that are very much tucked away. Um, and it seems to me that if you do things that really limit um, sites like Facebook, you're kind of putting this off to a, a corner where no one can see it. I think the, the biggest parallel is easily what happened with uh, music and movies mm -hmm. uh, towards, I think, the beginning of the 2000s, is that essentially as everything started going digital, you know, we had things like Napster and we had LimeWire, Kazaa, and we had all these platforms where people could illegally download the various content. But as soon as we started getting things like Netflix, as soon as we started getting things like Amazon Prime, HBO Max, people were willing to pay in order mm -hmm. to have that content. It's just that before, they never had the opportunity. So particularly when it comes to movies and things that are coming out, you, you probably can look at piracy and just see how much of it has gone down. And even so you know, piracy and what we call it at the time, particularly when it comes to torrents, you know, people were a lot, a lot of times sharing things that they did buy, mm -hmm. you know, with some of their friends. Obviously, you had this alternative market that kind of built up. But for a lot of that, I see much the same with what's happening with a lot of these other websites. I've, I've gone to many of these websites and links and forums, and I've used, you know, Reddit and all these others, because, you know, sometimes that's where alternative conversations are happening. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's incitements to violence or anything else, but it also means it's not the mainstream view that you see in the newspaper. And I think that's what the internet has really provided us are these great alternatives, because not everyone thinks the same. You know, there's not one way of viewing an issue. There's not two ways of viewing it. And to have people mobilizing and having all these different platforms, I think is good. We still need some amount of moderation, uh, still the ability to call them out. But I think overall, it's a good thing. Speaking of moderation, that's something that I've, um, one of the websites that I, I follow a lot is um, Tech Dirt, um, which I understand maybe about 40% of it, but it's still a fascinating um, site to talk about. But one of the things I think that, that they talk about a lot is the difficulty of content moderation. And I think you know, it's not to say that it's not one that you can't do that, but how difficult it is um, to really keep up on it, to get it right. Um, and it seems to me that 
at least the people who are very critical um, about Facebook, do they really un even understand that or understand the difficulty it is in, in how to make those judgment calls or and even just the, the amount of information that comes in? Um, it, it can make it very challenging. Yeah, one thing we heard in the uh, congressional testimony of the now famed uh, whistleblower, um, Frances Haugen, and she's going to be everywhere, folks. She's mm -hmm. in the UK giving her testimony. She'll probably be in Canada soon and the EU as well. Uh, what we, we sort of heard is that, oh, Facebook was responsible for genocide in Myanmar. You know, when you actually look at the claim, what the claim is that Facebook did not do enough to moderate what some people were saying against various minorities in Myanmar, that they could have been uh, more impactful, more forceful, they could have had more moderators, which is probably true everywhere in the world. But then again, we're looking at a tech platform and expecting that they're going to have all the same knowledge about every single situation in every place. I mean, if, if some of the regulations that are, are being discussed are proposed, it would mean that you would need for every single internet platform something to the order of 100 moderators per country, which would be incredibly expensive and impossible, and figuring out ways to understand the local context and language. And I, I think it would just be very difficult. I think we're asking often too much uh, for many of these platforms. And oftentimes, when we have a, a company like Facebook, even if there is going to be regulation, who do you think it's going to benefit? It'll definitely benefit them because they have the resources to hire moderators. They have the resources to put together these teams, whereas many of these upstarts won't and definitely don't. And I think that question about content, it's a really difficult one. And that's why you know we rely on this kind of private arbitration method whereby we sign the terms of service and we understand the rules of the game, You know, can't use any disparaging terms, this and that. I, I think that's where the better platforms that have better rules are going to be followed, you know, and that's why competition is important. And if you have platforms that don't moderate at all, they generally can become cesspools. And I think you'll see more people voting with their feet. And I think that would be much more effective than some kind of a burdensome rule that would come from DC, Brussels or elsewhere. Um, Going back to talking about Instagram, I mean, and and this was probably one of the things that the whistleblower talked about, but also came through the Facebook papers, is the whole thing about um, young girls and um, images on on Instagram. Um, what wasn't really talked about was that the way it made it sound like is that all of these girls are, are watching and seeing these perfect bodies and then are, you know, disturbed by it. But that that wasn't, it didn't sound like that was the whole thing that, that was talked about. It's just that kind of they gleaned a little bit of, of the study and then kind of went to town and didn't really talk about, you know, the fact that we've had things like Vogue forever um, that young girls have seen and frankly, just any young woman in our society today is always bombarded with the perfect image. Um, so kind of explain why, why did we make it sound like all of a sudden this is to blame for how women feel about their bodies as if this didn't exist 40, 50 years ago? 
Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I think it has to do with their internal research that Facebook had concluded. You know, they put together surveys of various teenage girls and asked their thoughts about using the platform and how they felt. And I think a lot of that was gleaned from some of those results. You know, knowing the number of people who respond to these type of surveys, uh, you know, the scale, exactly how you frame the questions. There's all kinds of things that we can come from that, but it, it does have to do again with the algorithms because then the assumption is that if you uh, look up one time something about you know eating disorders or search some account, then you know your homepage or your feed will be diluged with all types of different examples. I mean, all the things that they were mentioning, as you said, are sociological phenomenons. I mean, I see that now raising two daughters and understanding a bit of what they're facing and seeing things in a different way. Yeah, there's a lot of expectations that are put on women and young girls, and much of that is reflected in the culture in Hollywood, in any Netflix show that you might see, any advertising that you might see, the advertising industry in general, uh, everything that's coming out of Hollywood, that's coming out of those magazines that you mentioned, the fashion industry. I think there it's just that Facebook is public enemy number one of the moment, and anything that might happen on Instagram while it might also be true of every single large fashion or Hollywood platform or you know website or magazine, uh, Facebook is the convenient target at the moment, and everyone's going to have a gripe. And you know we've learned this from not just history but all types of literature. You know there, there are people who are going to gang up at once on a particular product or service or person, and essentially we're going to wither away the basic elements of our liberal societies. And we're churning away at that every single day. And it's just going to make things more illiberal in mm -hmm. the future. And it's going to make the next innovative entrepreneur who's sitting in his garage with the next idea for some Facebook thing or you know something else that much more reluctant to jump off. And I think that's the more unfortunate thing is that we're actually stunting a lot of innovation that could be solving these problems much better with the way that we're viewing them through the lens of regulating through some central entity in, in DC or otherwise. Uh, but there are a lot of very big sociological and cultural questions to ask that I think are just much too complex uh, for many of our conversations. Yeah, and related to the the, the whistleblower, there um, you talked about that she was in the UK, um, and one of the things that came up was she talked about encryption, um, and it was in a way that almost made it sound like she didn't understand it. Um, and I'm not going to pretend that I understand everything about um, encryption either, but there was some case where she was talking about end-to-end um, -end encryption and how in some ways dangerous that could be, especially dealing with the Uyghurs in China um, and that they shouldn't have this type of encryption um, because that will be used by the Chinese government, which seems to be backwards um, because you would think that that would be more of a help for the Uyghurs to communicate without having the, the government snooping. I guess what I'm trying to get at is it seems like the, um, the whistleblower is kind of being put forward as an expert on everything. And it seems like in this case, she didn't really understand the whole concept of encryption. Yeah, I think uh, Glenn Greenwald had an interesting post about this, and it it's fairly well known that at this point, um, Ms. Haugen has collaborated with you know some firm in 
DC, you know, they're sort of an activist group and they've been pushing her out on, on many different things. So it's not a surprise that she would be asked to comment or that they would put things in front of her to say, oh, also you can mention this and that. And, and there are all types of issues uh, when we talk about the internet and we talk about encryption that many people would love to undo. Um, I, we haven't really heard too much about this. It's not really elevated, but the FBI has been seeking mm -hmm. to get rid of encryption, uh, particularly on iPhones and you know all the messaging apps for so long. It, it is something that every FBI director, I think, and well, I guess there's only been a couple in the last 10 years, but every single one has put out a speech at some point saying why encryption is bad, why it harms law enforcement. I mean, we get it through culture. If we look at any television show about police officers, it's always about oh, we're not able to get into their phone and that's because of this terrible company and they bring the tech company in. They say he's a bad guy because they won't let him into the phones. I mean, it's this kind of trope uh, that continues this narrative. And unfortunately, it's gone, it's gone to that level and that will impact a lot of products and services. And you know, it would impact future whistleblowers. People rely on things like encryption. They rely on things like the Tor network and apps like Signal to reach out and get good information. If we start withering away with encryption, yeah, it's going to empower not just you know bad companies, but also very bad regimes, much like that of China and the Chinese Communist Party, much like Russia. Uh, there are many in Eastern Europe that would love to do the same. Uh, we have to be very careful about these kind of things because you know these are great innovative products and services that have come out from you know cryptography experts and people for decades. And if we're talking about undoing that because of a temporary political concern, uh, that would mean that a lot of people would be harmed down the road. Well, moving on to um, Section 230. And you know, one of the things I think that at least here in the United States that we've been talking about is either modifying or basically removing it altogether. And um, we haven't seen how far, you know, no legislation has at this point yet been put forward, but um, where do you see that going? Do you see that someone, that there will be an attempt to try to put forward legislation or um, will it just be something that people could just keep talking about and not really doing anything? Well, I think unfortunately right now you have a, a kind of a convenient marriage uh, between those on the left and right, uh, particularly in Congress. Uh, for different reasons. Uh, so they want to kill this part of the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, that makes it so that no platform is necessarily liable uh, for the content or comments that are put on there. And that is, has been very important for the growth of the internet, for startups, for every platform you can name. It's been vital to that. Unfortunately, it is framed at times as a sort of, quote, giveaway to the tech giants. But you know, the same thing that protect that protects my blog, you know, mm -hmm. on WordPress, you know, my website, you know, protects Facebook or protects Google and all these kinds of things. I think that when we look at particularly uh, a lot of the senators who are very active right now on these issues, I mean, they're writing books about it like crazy. We have um, Holly uh, has put out a book upon it. We have uh, Amy Klobuchar, who's done the same. So I think, unfortunately, we might see some action on this. I don't think they would kill it necessarily, they will probably put in some conditions. Um, like for instance, it only applies to companies that make under a billion dollars or something like that. Some very terrible carve out that I hope would not be uh, voted in by, by both <laughs> houses of, uh, of Congress. So I, I do think there is momentum for that, unfortunately. Um, there are a lot of people who are working against those movements. You know, I've written about these issues. I think it's very important. 
I think most people just view it again as this kind of caricature of if we just kill this, that means that, you know, your grandpa won't be able to share bad memes on Facebook anymore. But it would go much further than that. And we really have to be responsible when we talk about, you know, changing regulations that would really completely reorient how online platforms work. We have to be more responsible and really think about what the fallout could be. So, you know, is it going to happen? I can't say I'm not going to put any money on it. But I will say that the unique situation right now makes it so that people in Congress are very weaponized about this issue. Uh, that's why it is incumbent upon many of us who basically see that as a threat to continue talking about it and really giving the other side. Because unfortunately, many of the institutions that are lobbying for it, or at least you know, allowing op-eds and stuff in their papers saying that it would be a terrible idea, you know, they're also going to be at fault at some point. You know, it's not necessarily the same. Uh, when you talk about the New York Times and what they print, but, you know, look at their comment page, look at, you know, other things that people are writing about New York Times. There's all kinds of stuff that can come out. Mm. And, and there is an actually um, late last year was an article by um, a writer for um, The Week magazine, Ryan Cooper, who basically argued getting rid of um, Section 230 and and basically was fine with the inter internet kind of reverting to something say circa two th the year 2000 um, where there are more chat rooms and um, email lists and basically that there were less people on the internet. Um, and I think that with even with all the problems that there, there might be, that seems to be something that would be, I would think rather disturbing is to have less people having access than more. Um, and I don't know if he in some ways was showing, um, saying the quiet part loud, um, but it seems like that was what, what, it seems like that's kind of the end result of what a lot of people are getting at, that if we just didn't have as many people and all that, things would be better. Um, but yeah, if we if we just didn't have yeah. as many people voting, you know, we wouldn't have the issues because everyone would vote for our side. It's kind of the same logic. Exactly. Yeah, I find this very problematic because it also it's based, I think it's a very false claim to say that most of the internet is just the social networking websites. That's just inherently not true. You know, we have all types of forums and blogs and, and people have their own sites that they've put out there. You know, most of the internet is not Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and all the rest. Sure, they might have a lot of content, uh, but people use the internet for all kinds of different things. I mean, I have a Bitcoin node that's running right now in my office. I have all kinds of things that I've been able to connect all cloud computing software, all this kind of stuff that has nothing to do with social networking. And I think it's, this, it's very true for a lot of different people. And the arguments that he brought up in the article are very similar to those that we would like to do away with online anonymity, which I think would be very dangerous in, in its own way. And it's another way of extending you know, this type of redoing of Section 230 so that anyone who makes a bad comment online anywhere will be targeted and identified and reported to the authorities and that's just not a world that we want. You know, we, we live in liberal societies, most of us, and we do so, we're supposed to be proud of that. And I think the one reason why so many people do and why so many people who are in illiberal countries want to escape to come to the freer countries is that there is this general respect for freedom of speech, freedom of expression, for the ability to start your own company, to, you know, reach out, start your own organization. There are many less barriers in the way in liberal countries as opposed to the liberal ones. And unfortunately, it seems like in all the talk of Section 230, you know, we're pulling right from 
very despotic governments. Um, you know, Turkey is a very good example of a country that banned Wikipedia. You know, they they go very far in terms of internet regulation and saying this speech is this speech is allowed, this speech is not allowed, and it's made it so that every single person in Turkey, particularly young people, know very much how to use you know the Tor project, Tor network. They know how to reroute certain websites and use VPNs. And you know, we we don't have that in the United States because we have such a free country and a free economy, and people are able to discuss these ideas. I just really don't want to see a system in which we would have less freedom online. Everything would be kind of subject to more and more lawsuits, which you know we can talk about the litigious, litigious uh, part of our culture, which is a lot. Uh, that's a whole other issue. But I, I just would not like to see that future. I think that would generally be harmful. I didn't know that um, Wikipedia was so dangerous. Um, that's, oh, yeah, inform- that's free information yeah. is a very, very difficult and uh, <laughs> dangerous thing out there. So um, kind of wrapping this up for now is where do you see things headed? Um, you know, especially with Facebook, we've heard a lot about all of these papers and I, I'm assuming there will still be more information coming down the pike. Um, you know, what does this all mean for Facebook? What does it mean for social media? Yeah, I think, uh, look, Facebook is, not, is likely not going to be here in 50 years. Now, whether that's because they get basically quashed by some competitor or they get regulated out of existence, only time will tell. But I do think this is a moment for continued innovation and competition from the private sector, from innovators. And I would welcome that. I think it's great. And there's all types of platforms. You know, obviously, President Trump is starting his own uh, sort of network that's based on uh, Mastodon, which is like an open source project, which I think it's great because I have my own and I know a lot of other people who use these. That's great. You know, things like Gab exist, things like, uh, you know, Rumble. There's all these alternatives. I think more people are just going to become more awake to that and they'll use them. I think overall, that's a good thing. What I would not like to see is continued enforcement or actually some terrible laws that are dreamed up that would make it so that no alternatives will be possible uh, because the incumbents, those that already exist, those that already have power, they're going to continue reigning on. You know, it, it doesn't really matter that there's going to be, uh, you know, some regulation on this. They have the means to fight it or to comply with it, and many of these upstarts won't. So I, how I see it going is I, I, I think there will be a more decentralized approach to how we use the internet in the future, um, whether it be because more people are getting involved in things like cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, which I would hope. But then again, it might just be because people are not having as much fun on Facebook and Instagram anymore. And we should welcome that competition. You know, we're not here to, to support any particular network or any particular platform, uh, but really finding the place where we can make the most connections, where we can have conversations like these. That's why RSS is important. Podcasting is important. We should also keep that very free. Uh, but I think there are going to be some better innovations that come along. And if our legal system and our regulatory system can accommodate those, I say all the better. Uh, but if we let the temptations of the moment drive us, that might not be the case. Mm. Yeah, and I think I am fascinated about hearing about the decentralized um, internet because I think that will that could be something that's the next thing down the pike. Um, and who knows? It could, I think, spur some innovation. Um, I'm always fascinated by that. I'm, I also get a little bit lost because. 
you start to talk about blockchain and I'm kind of like, okay. But I do understand that having something that is um, less centralized might be something that could be the key um, to the future, especially when it comes to social media um, and, and other forms of communication. Oh, yeah. And it's how the internet was built in the very beginning. And that's why the current laws, you know, allow that environment to happen. And it'll happen. The number one barrier that we didn't even mention yet is just complexity, which I guess you're, you're kind of hinting at. Yeah, I, if it is, yeah. The, the more complex it is, you know, to host your own server, to do whatever, it makes it difficult. But, you know, that's what's great about the internet is that not everybody needs to host their own mail server. There are people who are willing it to do them for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have a Mastodon instance that I started on my own that other people can register for. They don't have to deal with the administration and the server costs and all of the rest. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot more is, you know, we're going to shift trust. Perhaps we'll use a big company like Facebook or Instagram, or perhaps we'll use a smaller company or the guy that's in our neighborhood, you know, who, who has his own ISP or his own server that he set up. I'm, I'm very excited for that future. And I think it's coming more and more. Uh, if we even look at Starlink and Elon Musk's, you know, idea of, internet by satellite. I mean, that's going to really change the game, particularly in, in the Southern world. It's going to change it across the continent of Africa and different parts of Asia. Uh, I'm very excited about it. We don't have to be scared of the public uh, and Martin Gurry's, you know, revolt against the public. We don't have to be scared of the public. Uh, the public are actually going to bring us great things that'll make us freer and I think better off in the long term. Yeah. And I'm actually, um, may have you back on to talk a little bit more about um, the revolt of the public, because I think I've heard him, I've heard Martin Gurry on other um, shows and I've, I'm, like I said, I've been starting to read this and I think that that has a lot to do with maybe some of what's been going on with Facebook is a, a fear of the public. And um, maybe that's the, the, the note here is that we shouldn't fear the public. Sometimes it is in, in COIT, but um, I'd rather have that kind of free discussion than not have it at all. And because that's, I think, vital to democracy. And I think as we've learned, democracy is never, it, it's sort of messy. <laughs> oh, it's incredibly messy. Yes, I'd, I'd love to talk about that. I think there's there's a lot to come there. And, you know, we deal with the public every single day. We, we don't necessarily call it that. You know, we call it our friends and family or passerbyers or other people who are on the tram at the same time. But, you know, we're still kind of united in this uh Humanity, uh, humanity project at the moment. And I, I think we're all contributing in our own way. And those who will like to take power from us, they, I think, do have something to fear. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, thank you for uh, chatting with me today. This has been, a, a, I think, a very enlightening conversation um, and hope to have you on again. And we can talk a little bit more about um, communications because that is something that I'm always fascinated with and also about the future of social media. Perfect. En route. I love it. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Take care. time to chat with me today and I want to thank you for listening. Make sure to visit our website at enroutepodcast.org 
When you're there, you can sign up to be on the mailing list of the newsletter, listen to past episodes, and read some past articles. Also, you can consider while you're at the website of making a donation. Any gifts that um, come my way help to cover some of the costs associated with this podcast, and it allows me to continue to produce content that's worth a listen. You can donate at the Enroot website by going to Enroot podcast backslash donate. Before we close, I wanted to um, share one final note on Facebook. Facebook may not be innocent. I, and I can conclude that it has made some mistakes and probably made some things, things that would warrant looking into. But it's important to remember that social media is made up of people. You and I have agency. We are not simply at the beck and call of Facebook. We can decide how we want to use social media. Do we want to use it to bring people together or are we using it to pull people apart? Facebook can tweak its algorithms. But the fact of the matter is nothing's going to change until we decide how we want to act online. That's it for this episode of Enroute, a journey on religion and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, the host. Take care and Godspeed. <laughs>